New ideas and new technology are causing seismic shifts in the media industry. Where are we headed? What does it mean? Keep listening. Media strategist Gabriella Mirabelli talks with the brightest minds in entertainment and business. Meet the innovators, the risk takers, and the disruptors on the front lines of change from Hollywood, Wall Street, Silicon Valley, and beyond. The future is coming to a screen near you. Are you ready? This is the Up Next podcast with Gabriella Mirabelli. Welcome to Up Next. I'm your host, Gabriella Mirabelli. My guest today is Dr. Randall Pinkett, author of Data Driven DEI. He's an entrepreneur, innovator, and DEI expert. He's also the co founder, chairman, and CEO of BCT Partners, a global research, training, and data analytics firm. Today, we'll be discussing his book and some of the things people can do to evaluate and improve their organization's culture, climate, policies, and practices. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Many companies and organizations have a renewed focus on DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion. And at the top of your book, you have a Venn diagram that I particularly liked. And I think you set out the ways in which these things relate to each other really well. Would you mind just describing that visual for listeners? Absolutely. People sometimes confound the difference between diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging. Diversity simply defined is the range of human differences, all the ways that we're different. Diversity is a fact. Second, inclusion simply defined is involvement and empowerment. People feeling involved and feeling empowered. Inclusion is an action, something you do. Equity simply defined is fairness and equality in outcomes. People all having a fair opportunity for the same outcome. And equity is a choice. We choose to embrace equitable practices. And if you think of those three as overlapping concentric circles, at the center of all three, the the product, we might say, the outcome of diversity and equity and inclusion is belonging. And belonging is feeling valued, heard, and accepted. And if diversity is a fact and inclusion is an action and equity is a choice, then belonging is the outcome of the three. I love that. I think that's the best distillation of it that I've ever heard. So <laughs> bravo. <laughs> I really I really think it's great. And one of the things that's interesting is that something that used to be popular and used as a term was representation. And that isn't part of this Venn diagram. Is there a reason why? Mostly ling- linguistic. Okay. okay. I often think of diversity as representation or when we think of diversity and how we might measure it, we're looking at representation numbers. I really love how you've laid it out, the fact, the action, the choice, and the outcome. Really wonderful. And your new book is called Data Driven DEI. And I found this especially interesting because when I interviewed a researcher recently who works in Western Europe, one of the things that I learned, which I hadn't known, was that the countries in which he surveys, which are the UK, France, Germany, Italy, and Spain, only the UK actually tracks diversity data, that the other countries prohibit data collection around diversity. And his belief was that it was rooted in World War II and the ways in which categorizations of individuals were used to hurt them. But I I think that can cut both ways. And so I guess my question for you is, what is the significance in data to DEI efforts? I liken data to DEI as one might liken an instrument panel to a plane. That is 
you can fly a plane without an instrument panel. Let's be clear. When they first invented planes, there were no instrument panels, but it was a lot harder to fly the plane directionally, <laughs> navigationally. I mean, the list just goes on and on and on. Similarly, you can accomplish progress on DEI without data, but I would argue it's harder. Right. The data gives you direction. The data gives you a gauge. The data gives you a sense of the levers to pull from, just like the instrument panel does the same for the pilot. And if I take it further, only with an instrument panel can that plane go further and get to the right place. Right. In the absence of it, you're limited. Right. Interesting. So in the introduction to your book, you talk about working with an executive that you call Steve, and you discuss the power of him seeing his own poor performance, his blind spots, and his biases as illuminated by assessment data, and that it led to an aha epiphany. Do you believe that the project would have been able to be successful without this personal leadership epiphany? The answer is a resounding no. Uh, yeah. And, and the reason being, Steve had a blind spot. He had behaviors, leadership behaviors that were not effective for which he was unaware. Now, now to your point, someone could have flagged it and brought it to his attention, but that is also a form of data. Data is information, it's feedback, right, right. it's numbers, it's, it's, it's facts, it's interviews, it's et cetera. So he lacked data. Now, does that have to be an assessment, which people often think that's what we mean by data? No, it doesn't have to be. In his case, it was an assessment that gave him feedback that belied his, his self-reflection or his perspective on himself. But there's lots of other ways he could have gotten data by talking to people, by eliciting their feedback, by listening more. All of these are forms of data and valuable data. Well, but one of the things that I think is it's the epiphany part of it, because a lot of really powerful and transformational coaching often involves working with someone as they journey into uncomfortable truths about themselves and getting a person, especially a senior leader who, you know, due to their success, they tend to be pretty pleased with themselves and they've done a good job. So it's lots of good feedback on how they behave. It it can be challenging. So how do you get people to welcome and participate in their own discomfiture? It can be embarrassing to discover a blind spot, especially in this area. So how do you handle that? I, I argue to them that the old school model of leadership was that you had to present yourself as if you knew it all and could do it all. It was this, and I, I'm gesturing with my, you know, sitting upright with my, with my <laughs> With my with my fists in front of me, and I, you know, I am the leader, and I'm in charge, and I know where we're going and what we're going to do. And that is an old school model. If you want to lead in the 21st century, then the new model is you must be proactive and intentional of seeking out different perspectives because your perspective alone is limited. No matter how wise, how sage, how all knowing you think you may be, you don't know everything. Right, and and it's only by seeking out those alternate perspectives, different perspectives, even competing perspectives that you can round out what is the best solution, what is the best approach. And, it, and there's a humility underlying that to your question, Gabriela, which I love. The humility says, I must humble myself, be that servant leader who in many ways acknowledges that I can never know it all. And that if it is by seeking others' perspectives that I can bring my best self and I can elicit their best self. Well, as an external consultant and a paid coach, 
there's a level of commitment to participate, to listen you to you when you say those things. What advice would you give an HR executive who wants to start an effort like the one you outlined? How does one take their supervisors into that uncomfortable place confidently in a way that won't alienate them or create any sort of political suicide, but create this opportunity, this space for them to consider there might be room for improvement? Is there a way to to as a subordinate to introduce that conversation? And let's be clear, that is certainly easier said than done. (laughs) (laughs) The magic words are. (laughs) But important important and valuable and, and laudable. And I believe it begins by first, you have to have a relationship with that person. You cannot enter into that conversation in a vacuum or as a stranger. And it would be risky, if not ill-advised, to, to even bother to try to do so. Right, right. Having established the relationship, I think you have to create safe space where they're invited into a place where we both acknowledge that innovation and failure Creativity and mistakes all go hand in hand. Growth and discomfort must coexist. And so I have to invite you into the conversation. Do you do you want to grow? Do you embrace a growth mindset? Do you want to get better? Because again, if the answer to that question is no, that's also a non-starter. But if we agree that we that you want to grow, that we want to grow, mm. then discomfort has to be a part of that path forward. Right. And I often think of growth like a muscle. If you want a muscle to grow, you have to stress it and then it's sore. That's the discomfort. But the right. repair process makes it stronger and it makes the muscle better and it, and it makes you a better person when you lean into that discomfort. So I, I think it's about how we approach the conversation, how we frame it. Right. Well, and then, then there's also the, the business case. And when it comes to DEI, most people know that there is a business case to be made. But for listeners who don't have some of the facts on the tip of their fingers. Can you share some information that are sort of really snackable, easy to remember so that they can pull them out in a conversation to say, look, there's a reason it's good business. It's not just good. Absolutely. There have been several studies over the years that have sought to quantify and qualify the business case for diversity, equity, and inclusion. And I can share with you some of the the, the major highlights from across those studies. First is that you win the competition for talent. You out-recruit and out-retain the competition when you embrace diversity, equity, inclusion, A, because you're casting a wider net, and B, because that commitment also attracts others to your organization. Second, you strengthen your customer orientation. By embracing diversity, equity, inclusion, you better reflect your customers, better understand your customers, and therefore better serve and support your customers. Studies have also shown that if you survey people at more diverse organizations, they report higher engagement and satisfaction than less diverse organizations. People like to work in environments of diversity. Fourth, and this is what most know, diverse teams take longer to make decisions because they see things differently, Mm. but teams make better decisions. They're more innovative, more creative. Lastly, there's been some great work out of the UK that has found that In the minds of consumers, your corporate social practices on matters like diversity, equity, and inclusion are very closely linked to your brand, your reputation, and your image. And then lastly, uh, McKinsey's done several studies that have found when you get diversity, equity, and inclusion right, it has an impact directly on the bottom line, or at least it is correlated with having a positive financial impact on earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization, also known as EBITDA. But you have higher EBITDA 
when you embrace diversity, equity, and inclusion. So all of these are the highlights from what we know about the business case for DEI. Fantastic. Your DEI approach starts at zero with incentives. What are they and why aren't they part of your recurring cycle? Great question, Gabriella. And you've done your homework. I appreciate that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I always read the book. (laughs) I appreciate that. So I call it step zero, DEI incentives, because it's a values clarification process that puts you into a cycle. And that's not to say that you could not revisit the clarification of your values, but rather to say, if you want to embark upon a journey, this never ending cycle of diversity, equity, inclusion, then you have to begin that process by first asking the question, why does this matter to me? And that could be intrinsic or extrinsic. And that sets you on a particular path. Now, if those values change, you might change the path, Mm -hmm. but the values themselves are asking intrinsically, is it because of my religious upbringing? Is it because I just fundamentally believe people should be treated the way they want to be treated? Is it because of how my parents raised me? Like those are intrinsic incentives. And then the extrinsic is, well, I really don't care about diversity, equity, and inclusion, but they just put it in my performance evaluation. And so I didn't care yesterday, but I care today because I want my bonus or I want to be promoted or I want to get a good performance evaluation. And so whether it's intrinsic, extrinsic, or both, that then sets you in a particular direction or an aim, as I call it in the book, that says, okay, I want to be a better manager. I want to be a better colleague. I want to better able to do business across the globe. And then that puts you into a cycle to accomplish that, to Mm -hmm. be the better coworker, to be the better manager, or to navigate the world more effectively globally, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. After you've assessed your incentives and where you are, the next step involves determining where you want to go and how you'll know when you've arrived. Can you give us some examples of effective objectives and goals if we're in the first cycle, if you will? Absolutely. So the book breaks down this conversation both for people and for organizations. In other words, the book is not just about how organizations can embrace a data-driven approach, but also how people can embrace a data-driven approach. And for people- Should it be done for both? I mean, if you're doing an organization, shouldn't the people also do this for themselves? Yes, Shouldn't that be part of it? So it's a part of it. Yes, and I would say part and parcel of it, because we often focus these conversations on the organizational case, but there's also a personal case for DEI. I'm sure you would agree and your listeners would agree, if people are invested, much of the organizational part will take care of itself because Mm -hmm. they're driving the agenda, they're seeking to grow and improve, et cetera, et cetera. But I think we've often reversed the ordering. Organizations trying to convince people to care. Well, what about people caring and then driving their organizational agenda? Well, that's, it's interesting. Maybe before you give the objectives and goals, maybe then, because I I was also thinking about much the same way as I talked about the resistant executive at the top and the fabric of an organization, there can be, there will be pockets of unconscious bias and there may be active resistance. And sometimes there can be almost like a gray culture, which operates in parallel to the stated culture. There can be this parallel system that you need to address these People, people need to be addressed to your point of part and parcel. So can you give us some examples of effective objectives and goals linking like a personal with an organizational so we can see that connective tissue? Absolutely. From a personal perspective, you can imagine a a goal might be to increase my awareness of different cultures across the globe. Maybe I work in an organization that is 
either global or is now expanded to be global. And most of my work experiences have been have been domestic. And so I want to increase my awareness. Or another goal might be I want to increase my intercultural competence to work effectively with people who are different than me. And intercultural competence is about how do you navigate and bridge differences. So it's a step further than just increasing awareness but building the competence to navigate and bridge differences. One more example for what might be a personal objective. It could be to be an effective sponsor and advocate for women within my division. Maybe my division has women who are underrepresented and I I choose or I desire to be a part of the solution uh, and be proactive rather than passive or reactive. Mm -hmm. And therefore that becomes my personal objective. And you can clearly see how that could link to organizational objectives. But if an organization is going global and they want to better understand global customers, then the individual journey feeds the organizational one. If the organization wants to have higher representation of women in leadership, then again, the individual agenda of you being an advocate and a mentor and a sponsor feeds the organizational agenda of greater gender diversity in our leadership. They they go hand in hand. I see. So cycling back then, when you've done these programs, have you found, I guess I'd like to talk about maybe when it when it is a little bumpy. You know, when you you got the top, you have the you have Steve who gets it. He has his epiphany, but maybe a couple layers down in management, somebody's like, "I'm good. I don't need this." Or yeah, roll my eyes. I'm gonna like do what I need to do because I want my bonus. How do you how do you manage that? How do you get them to get on board? And how do you ferret out? How do you identify if that's happening? Yeah. So we we typically. As a part of our assessments with organizations, we'll administer a survey instrument to assess culture and climate. And uh, for us, it's it's our uh, DEI, Workforce and Workplace Assessment. And in administering that survey, which is one of the things I recommend for any organization doing an assessment, is we will gather information from respondents that allow us to slice and dice the data. So for an example, we'll gather demographics, gender, race, ethnicity. We'll gather location. Is it the West Coast office or the East Coast office? We'll gather information on their level. Are they entry level? Are they managers? Are they executives? When we slice and dice it, now we can begin to pinpoint where is their support and where is their resistance? Because we're asking questions like, do you believe that this is important work for us to be doing? Do you, do, you, do you feel like your voice is heard? Are you committed to diversity, equity? And this is done anonymously so that- I was hope- wondering about that. What if your client's like, I'd like to see these surveys. Is it like, no, 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 you can't see them. It's very definitely anonymous and private. It, it, it's, it's anonymous. We are a third independent party and we do not disclose the raw data back to the client and we report the results in aggregate. And even if there is a group that is say underrepresented, like there's one Latina woman in the whole organization. So you're going to know if it's, you know, so we, so we will not disclose that information. If, if identity can be discerned through the aggregation or disaggregation, then we will not disclose that data. We will only disclose for groups that are 10 or more. And so okay. through a number of steps that we take around anonymity, around privacy, around confidentiality, and around protecting identity, and being that third independent party, we try to create a space where people can where we can maximize the likelihood of not people not only responding, but responding with fidelity. And once we identify those pockets, we can develop strategies that are very targeted that says, 
well, in this department, in, in, in this location, we might need different messaging because there's resistance. And so okay. here we might deliver the message that says, we, or, or even in a focus group or a town hall, we might need to also unearth because a survey can tell us what people feel, but an interview or focus group can tell us why they feel that way. So we'll go out to the West Coast office where we know there's resistance and do a focus group uh, with, a, with, a, with a demographic that may have shown resistance and say, okay, let's have a conversation. Like, what are you feeling? And we'll do that, in a, in a, again, in a safe space where they can be forthcoming to say, well, you know what? I'm afraid that this diversity, equity, and inclusion effort means that you want less people like me. Right. And so we, we can begin to unpack that and then develop messaging that says, no, this is not a zero-sum game. We, we're looking to expand the pie, not create a zero-sum pie. Right. Right. What about the size? I mean, to your point, you said 10 or more size of organization. Do you, can it work with any size organization or do you really need a certain size to be able to do this level of thing and to not have it be, it's idiosyncratic because it's a small organization? It can be done with any organization of of any size. We work with organizations, small, medium, and large, and we right size the assessment and the recommendations and the strategy to their capacity. So if you're a 10-person organization, the report will look very different than 30,000 people. Even that you're a five-person shop, we're going to make certain that we are meeting you where you are, that you can then go where is realistic for you to go. Right. Well, how can people and organizations determine if their initiative have if their initiatives have been successful? Is everything measurable? So if everything we, that's relevant and important to this conversation. So, so many, so many things are measurable. We can measure attitudes. We can measure perceptions. We can measure behaviors. We can measure progress. We can measure impact. We think about it through two lenses, uh, outputs and outcomes. Mm. Outcome is a final result. Our culture is more inclusive. People feel like they're included. Uh, To our earlier conversation, we have greater representation of women at the executive level. We can pride ourselves on having more equitable practices because our hiring is showing through the data that we are more inclusive in our hiring and in in who's being hired. So those are all outcomes. An output is an intermediate result. So an output is we did a training. An output is we assessed our policies and practices. An output is we created a women's leadership program and we have 50 people in the program. It's an output, but those are not outcomes. They are stepping stones to getting to the outcome that during the training might transform culture, creating the the leadership development program might increase representation of women at the executive level, but we can't confuse the two. Outputs are showing us we have activity, whereas outcomes are showing us some level of finality that we've arrived where we're trying to arise. We think about both measuring outcomes and measuring outputs. So if I'm thinking back to that Venn diagram you described, in some ways, these these outputs are these actions, they're these inclusive actions, and they represent the choice of equity, but they haven't really landed to that belonging outcome yet, right? Would you say, is that a fair? Uh, I'd say that belonging is an outcome. That's the outcome, but your, your output you're taking the steps, you're doing the actions, you're doing the inclusions and you're making the choice to do them. So this is even embarking on it is, is choice. Now the work is like diet and exercise. It's forever. (laughs) 
<laughs> you always have to keep doing it. Do you ever run into client fatigue? You know, like, gee, don't we ever, aren't we ever in shape and just looking good? I mean, you know, where's that oh, yeah. mythical place? <laughs> uh, well, I'm running into client fatigue right now. Some of, some of my clients and and it requires like any other effort to transform people and transform organizations. You've, you've got to keep it fresh. You've got to be innovative. You can't rest on laurels and you can't keep circling back on the same strategies and, and activities. So yeah, we definitely see what people are calling DEI fatigue. And in some ways, the maturity of the work is how we lean into different modalities. So we're leveraging virtual reality, for example, in order to give people an experience to see the world through somebody else's shoes. We're using mobile apps like the Inclusion Habit, which are, are it's like Noom for inclusive behavior. Like it offers up a model for how you can behave more inclusively. Like Noom gives you a model for how you can eat. Uh, oh. Greater wellness. So it's giving you daily reminders or daily what we call micro commitments that can that research has shown will lead you to being more inclusive. So when you think about these kind of innovations that keep it interesting and keep it exciting and keep it um, new, that's how we avoid people achieve stating DEI fatigue. Well, also, what happens, you know, obviously, let's say you've started and you've got these outputs because we're new and you don't know yet. And you say you've created a, a women's leadership group or what have you. That's your your output. But then you're not getting outcomes. How do you deal with the gap? We have these things, but we don't seem to be getting any different outcomes. How do you help assess what what's falling through the cracks? What's not working? How do you how do you deal with that? And, and, and here is where you absolutely have to have the data. Okay. Because invariably, what, what we've witnessed at, at, at my firm, BCT Partners, is that there are going to be areas where you inevitably make some progress or groups with whom you inevitably make some progress and those with whom you don't. And without the data, again, getting back to our analogy of the plane, mm. you're, you're flying blind. Right. You, you don't know how you arrived where you are and you don't know how to get back on course with where you want to go. Right. So, so the data tells us, okay, we made progress in this office or with this group and we did not with this office location or with this group. So now if we were casting a wide net across all office locations, now we might need to focus in on this office location and maybe revisit the interviews and the focus groups or the survey to say, okay, what insights can we glean that can help us illuminate how to change our messaging, how to change our strategy, how to adjust the training or our approach so we can now, or what did we learn from where we did make progress that we can now apply from there to here? Wonderful. Thank you so much for taking the time to join me in conversation and share your story and your approach. It's it's really great stuff. Thank you so much for the opportunity to be here. And thank you for your voice and uplifting voices like mine. We've reached the end of another episode of Up Next. I'd like to close by thanking my production team, Up Next, my friend Rob Mountain, the voice artist who recorded our open. And of course, all of you, the members of our audience, thank you. I'll be talking to you again next time right here on Up Next. <laughs>